0: Welcome to Recalculating, Adventist Life Now. Let's get started. Today I have the opportunity of talking with Michael Campbell. We're going to be visiting with Michael, professor at Southwestern Adventist University. Welcome, Michael.
1: Delighted to be with you, Skip.
0: Uh, Michael has contributed to our journey in the Adventist faith in his teaching, his research. Uh, some of you are familiar with the Ellen G. White Pocket Dictionary, co authored with Judd Lake. Uh, he has done work in the Spanish language, collaborating with others. Uh, with Nicholas Sottlemyre, Here We Stand, Luther, the Reformation, and Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, he is uh, a professor in church history, largely Adventist studies. His doctoral degree from Andrews University is in Adventist studies. I was very interested, Michael, in your book, which I've recently read, uh, 1919, The Untold Story of Adventism's struggle with fundamentalism. I, I saw an interview in Spectrum in which the issues that were treated within your work were examined, and that led to my interest in spending some more time with you, uh, Michael. So I'm glad you could join us today. I, I want Thanks. I want to ask you to begin around this kind of. Question: You studied the 1919 Bible Conference where the inspiration of Ellen White was candidly and openly discussed. You could say perhaps argued over by influential Adventist leaders, theologians, academics gathered there. And in your book explores that event. Why do you feel this event 100 years ago deserves greater scrutiny and examination?
1: Well, great question, Skip. Uh, A lot of different ways that I could answer that, but I think at its core, the whole event of the 1919 Bible Conference and what took place there really boils down to a question of hermeneutics or how do you interpret inspired writings? And with regard to Ellen White, I think not everyone realized that this would be a conference of that magnitude because when they had the list of topics, Ellen White wasn't even listed. But now with hindsight, we can look back and recognize that this was the first major gathering to discuss how to properly interpret, back to hermeneutics, um, how to correctly interpret inspired writings, notably, of course, Ellen White's writings. And thus, it became the first major uh, conference where church leaders uh, discuss Ellen White's authority and interpretation of her writings after her passing away four years earlier. So in a nutshell, I think that's really why this conference matters. and. The fact is, is that as Seventh-day Adventists today, you know, we continue to have a myriad number of issues and challenges, but at its core, I would suggest that hermeneutics, how we interpret these inspired writings, remains an ongoing challenge, maybe not quite in the same way as 100 years ago, but uh, in various ways that the contours uh, of how we've interpreted in hermeneutical battles through the 20th century Uh, Thus, I think there's some lessons that we can learn from a century ago that uh, are very pertinent for the church today.
0: And, uh, Michael, I was interested to reflect on some of the significant discussions of that conference. In, In that time, 1919, uh, what was happening on the stage of uh, a world history with the conflict of World War One? Evangelists were drawing conclusions and offering biblical interpretations. Um, can you reflect on some of the significant discussions of the conference?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you raised kind of two different things here, the first being the surrounding context. I'm a firm believer that in order to really appreciate what's going on, you need to understand uh, the context. And as a historian, I mean, that's what, that's what we do is context. And so World War one that's outside the church uh, and obviously of great significance, a great loss of life. Here, all this modern technology and people are now able to use and harness that to take away life in an unprecedented way. Uh, The other thing that has become very pertinent and I thought was probably one of the least interesting aspects of my dissertation was the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, which briefly delayed the 1919 Bible Conference. And here you have, again, an even greater loss of life. So there's a certain, uh, or I should say, a great deal of, of uncertainty, of anxiety within the wider culture. And within the Adventist Church, obviously the loss of Ellen white uh, creates an anxiety in itself as well uh, so that's that's really kind of the broader context within the Bible conference itself i I kind of have argued at various times that it should be really called a a prophecy conference because World War one framed it so so much so that. Uh, during the war, as you uh, alluded to, that there were a number of Adventist evangelists who were jumping on the bandwagon of, you know, hey, this is the end, Armageddon, uh, especially using a lot of terminology related, related to Daniel 11 with the king of the north, king of the south. And during the conflict, it raised some issues that there are some disagreements among Adventists, not just evangelists, but leading theologians, thinkers of the church, administrators over how to properly interpret not not the big major things like the 2300 days everyone agreed about that but some of the more fine-tuning at fine-tuned aspects of of prophetic interpretation and and that sort of sets the stage where Daniels as our church president at that time sees a real need if we could just lock all of these influential persons in a room for six weeks that somehow when they're done that everyone would be agreed and they would be united and could finish the work but uh, of course with history we can see uh, with hindsight how perhaps even naive not to sound judgmental but but really that was at best wishful thinking and so that sets a little bit of that context I think
0: it was to last for 6 weeks <laughs> that's you know in today's the haste of today's life that seems like a long time 6 weeks
1: well it does but you have to also realize that the biggest expense for a bible conference like this was was really the travel expense so the people that they were targeting primarily were history and bible teachers and, of course, most of the editors and administrators are already living in our, you know, near church headquarters in Tacoma Park. And the university provided basically free room and board. Uh, so, you know, if you could get all of those key people mm-hmm. together, it wasn't as big of a deal as it might be today to provide that same kind of logistics and expense. And so uh, it was really intended as sort of like a in-service training uh and so for them, and in fact, they told many of the participants, you know, come prepared to stay longer after the session's over because there's all these libraries in Washington, D.C. You could do research. It would be enriching to your classes. So use this as an opportunity to grow. And so that's, again, part of the framework. But yeah, it does seem a bit uh, a bit long. You know, uh, when you and I were together, I think a, a couple of years ago, there was uh, a Bible conference and... Uh, over, you know, the, the Biblical Research Institute holds these these meetings periodically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's for maybe four or five days a week at most. But, yeah, you're right. It, it was a bit lengthier than we might be used to today.
0: So this conference was the, um, the first major discussion uh, of the... Uh, academic community together with church leaders, etc. Uh, since the death of Ellen White, uh, it followed her death by about four years. Is that is that again the correct historical framework? It's about four years it, after her death.
1: It is. It's about four years afterwards, and you know, one, you know, it's not like we didn't have academic meetings before that. But one thing that does set this meeting apart is that a lot of the participants had advanced training. And for the first time, you have people with earned doctorates, with master's degrees from leading universities, people that had advanced training in biblical languages, among other languages. Uh, So, you really don't see anything of this quite of of this caliber in Adventist history up until this point. So, in a sense, this is a, a major new undertaking. It is sort of a a, a new uh, level of sophistication in terms of how the church is going to deal with its internal uh, theological struggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, could could you comment on the historical? Uh fundamentalist movement that was rising at that time. And my my viewpoint from your work and the work of others is that that fundamentalist movement posed some challenges to our traditional view of inspiration. Can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, you know, back to context, Skip, uh, and so, you know, we've looked at World War One and the influenza pandemic, but within especially American Christianity, you had the rise of what is now termed fundamentalism. And and basically, and I have to be careful to delineate, because some people that may be listening, you know, you hear fundamentalism, you hear maybe like Islamic fundamentalism, it's usually couched today in terms of some kind of religious extremism. And, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about a distinct historical movement at the late Uh, 19th, early 20th century, where uh, conservative Christians in America were responding to some significant intellectual changes. Uh, Not only do you have the rise of modernism uh, and, for example, critical thinking about the Bible, uh, the rise of the historical critical method in Germany, which began to become popularized in America in the early 20th century. Uh, but you also have Christians that are wrestling with uh, the whole concept of evolution. Do we create some kind of synthesis and adapt, or do we resist evolution? So there's some deep uh, drops of intellectual uh, unrest and sort of an intellectual quest and journey that's going on within, especially in higher education in America, and some churches are adapting to those currents, and others are strongly resisting. And the category of those who are strongly resisting is this historical movement we now call the fundamentalist or fundamentalism. And it really reached a high point during the time of the 1919 Bible Conference. And even during World War One. these same, again, I have to say fundamentalists, it's a term that didn't even become popularized till the early 1920s by a Baptist preacher who, who coined the term uh, and the term really resonated with people simply because of a group of pamphlets that were financed by two brothers, uh, Lyman and Milton Stewart, who were basically the precursors of what today we call ExxonMobil, the American Standard Oil Company. They'd made their fortune on oil, used their money for mission, for promoting basically what we would say is a fundamentalist agenda trying to warn Christians about the dangers of evolution, modernism, of critical thinking, historical critical thinking. And in, and so in that midst, in that milieu, you see Adventists are rising to the fore saying, well, hey, here's some people that uh, really are upholding the authority of Scripture. And, and in many ways, there were, there were a lot of good things to say for fundamentalism, Uh, But there were some negative sides, and two that I think were the most problematic for Adventism are what you allude to, number one being their view of inspiration, because in their battle against evolution, their battle against some of these other kinds of things, they went basically, what I would say, to the opposite extreme by trying to not just uphold the inspiration of the Bible, but to push for a very rigid, narrow, and errant view of the Bible, that the Bible has no mistakes, there's no possible human error in the transmission process of the Bible. There's no flexibility. And so what happened is, is some Adventists began to take those views of inerrancy, that rigid view of inspiration, and apply them to the Bible and to LNY. And so that was the, the first problematic aspect, is this very rigid, narrow view of inspiration. The second one that I find extremely problematic is that there began to develop within fundamentalism And I would even say within Adventist fundamentalism, a kind of a very militant way of uh, approach to preserving and protecting the faith. And while that wasn't necessarily characteristic of everyone, it was characteristic of some, both in the wider fundamentalist movement and also within uh, what we might say is the historical Adventist fundamentalist movement.
0: So is it possible... Uh, that here in 1919, a uh, uh, tension of identity then began to develop in which there were the conservative traditionalists who uh, at least felt friendly towards this doctrinal uh, uh, approach to inspiration that we would term fundamentalism. They were at least friendly toward it, if not embracing it and the mainstream traditional view of the Adventist uh, uh, view of inspiration, which, which the the more conservative who would lean towards, and Michael, I'm, I'm probably interpreting this out of a bias, so take my pondering as an opportunity to clarify. It seems like there, uh, we created a tension that created a polarization between. The moderate or traditional view of Adventists, which was not characterized as being fundamentalist, and the fundamentalists. Help me, help me do a better job of describing that tension.
1: Yeah, you know, at, at its core, I think Adventists, all Adventists in 1919 resonated with fundamentalism. In fact, at one point, uh, Daniels basically says, we are the fundamentalists of the fundamentalists. So, and, and the reason being is, is the fundamentalists were understood as preserving the Bible, a literal creation, and Adventists adhere to the seventh day Sabbath, which date, harkens back to you know the fact that God created this earth and 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 literally created this earth, and that there was literally a seventh day on which God actually rested, and so. That kind of concept was was there affirming the validity of Bible prophecy. That Bible prophecy, and and of course, most Adventists would say, well, we don't quite agree with the fundamentalists in all aspects of Bible prophecy, but just the fact that we believe that Jesus is coming again, I uh, again this resonance that's there. So uh, again, uh, you know, as you read through the transcripts of the 1919 Bible Conference enough times, as I have. You see very clearly that, in fact, the 1919 Bible Conference is based on a series of larger prophecy conferences that these uh, fundamentalists are holding, and so uh, so that's the first point is to is to be very clear all Adventists in 1919. But you're right within Adventism, some who began to self-identify as the more progressives uh, began to say, well. You know some of these ideas that the fundamentalists have, especially with regard to inspiration, when you start applying them to Ellen White, we have some big problems. In fact, we need to really alert the church and educate the church membership uh, that 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 if you were to start going towards a very rigid and narrow view of inspiration and inerrancy, that that really we have serious issues with how Ellen White understood inspiration, revelation and and inspiration. And then you have a second group there at the 1919 Bible Conference who are also looking to the fundamentalists, but uh, they call themselves, ironically, the conservatives or the traditionalists. But, but really, looking back with hindsight and history, they were not the traditionalists. They were the ones imposing a new view of inspiration, this rigid, narrow view of inerrancy and applying and, and, you know, basically uh, pushing for that kind of understanding within the Adventist church. And so, yes, at 1919, you see basically in a nutshell two groups that, as the meeting goes on, increasingly polarize one another. And so, what was hoped initially would be a meeting that would bring unity to the church, in the end uh, led to disunity and even polarization, and and so it and and you have to appreciate that because uh, or understand that in the context of the wider fundamentalist movement, everyone saw every Adventist in 1919 saw themselves very much as a fundamentalist. You know that this is what the church needed, but the problem being is is how far do you go with how to apply that. And that's that's really what's taking place at the 1919 Bible Conference are these two different sides, and they're waging hermeneutical warfare, if you please, uh, battling for the stakes of how do we correctly interpret inspired writings. And so as they're debating various topics and issues related to prophetic interpretation, uh, behind the scenes are different issues of authority and and revelation inspiration that, you know, they're appealing to Ellen White's writings to solve their conflicts. And then as they're doing that, they realize, well, wait a minute, we really have some serious, need to have some serious conversations about how we correctly interpret Ellen White.
0: Now, how did the transcripts uh, themselves of the 1919 conference come to be uh, at least uh, away, if not lost, for all these years.
1: Yeah, I mean, great. That's, I think, an intriguing question because, you know, how do you know any history? And, and history is based on the evidence and what's left behind and what's preserved. Uh, and sometimes that's accidental, Uh you know, at the end of the transcripts there, we only know this because someone actually preserved it. There's these conversations that we need to educate the church and we should publish some things. And and so there's a committee that's appointed by the church to examine these kinds of things. How will they disseminate information and what they'll do with the transcripts? And unfortunately, we don't have any evidence that the committee met or what the committee actually decided. Uh, What we do know, however, is that, I mean, there are some portions of the minutes, Uh, for example, some of the devotional talks that Prescott actually later publishes in a book form. So it's not like everything that happened at the 1919 Bible Conference was somehow hidden. The best way I have, that makes sense to me at least, is that basically the transcripts were forgotten. And you know they were in the basement of the General Conference. There was no organized system. Someone put them in a box. There are little notes, at least there used to be when I first looked at them years and years ago, that basically some notes from different people that had gone through them and pulled some materials saying that they would return them, which is indicative to me that uh, it's pretty obvious that our the transcripts we do have, even though they're quite extensive, they're, if you remove all the duplicate pages, there's about 1,300 unique pages of material. That's, that's a lot. Uh, but even still, that's probably less than a third, I would guess, of the entire transcripts that would have been recorded in their entirety if we still had all of them. I did find a small portion of the transcripts in the Center for Adventist Research and the archives there at Andrews University. So we know that some other materials have somehow been preserved that someone probably checked out or, or borrowed. Uh, But we do know of a number of the presentations that were given that we don't have any record of them. With that being said, we do have a substantial uh, amount of those transcripts to be able to get at least a decent idea of what did take place and some of the controversies. And in the 1970s, all those boxes of material that there was a request uh, to the general conference leadership that they begin to organize that into an actual archive. And so Don Yost was the person who uh, took on that responsibility. At the same time, the Adventist Encyclopedia Project, uh, Don Newfeld and some others were just embarking on that. And so Don Mansell and the White Estate had seen in the review where there was a mention of such a Bible conference. And so the to make a long story short, basically... Uh, had put a request to Don Yo said, hey, if you see anything about a Bible conference in 1919, let me know. And of course, not long after, he's organizing boxes and says, oh, opens up a box and finds these transcripts and shares them with Don Mansell. And as they say, the rest is history because uh, obviously they realized they had stumbled onto something very significant for the development of Adventist theology and history.
0: Um, Now, uh, listeners, I am uh, dialoguing with Michael Campbell. uh, And in this uh, interview, Michael is uh, sharing his um, work and research uh, published in the book. Uh, I would highly recommend, listener, that you uh, obtain the book and read it carefully. 1990, The Untold Story of Adventism's. Struggle with fundamentalism, Michael. Who published that book?
1: Uh, Pacific Press. In the end,
0: that, that's a Pacific Press, and they have
1: uh, it available on Kindle. So, you, yeah, you can get it a variety of different formats. All right, yeah.
0: You uh, you uh, have recommended also uh, to review this period of of uh, the churches work with how to approach the inspiration, uh, the ideas and doctrine of inspiration surrounding the contribution of Ellen White to the um, formation of the Adventist movement. You've recommended George Knight's Ellen White's Afterlife. Can you make a a comment for us before we go forward on George Knight's work in this area?
1: Absolutely. in fact, you know, Dr. Knight was my advisor at Andrews for most of my time there, and so he's been a significant formative influence my own thinking, uh, and so, yeah, uh, uh, about, you know, as we're looking towards 1919, he kind of called me up and encouraged me to write about it. I already actually started writing and working on it, told me about his book on Ellen White's afterlife, and as it turned out they both came out about the same time, so it's as if they were kind of, uh, uh you know, very, very nicely complementing one another. Uh, George's book really looks, uh, at the more recent and you know, through the 20th century, this is where we've been particularly weak. We've done a lot of work as Adventist historians on the 19th century when Ellen White was alive, but not so much on the 20th century, and so uh, what George has really tackled is. And it almost seems somewhat autobiographical because it, it's part of his experience, too, through the 60s and 70s and what he's lived through, the challenges of last generation uh, theology, uh, the misuse uh, of Ellen White and, and pushing, some people pushing in the church for sort of an errant Ellen White. So he sort, of, he sort of shows through the 20th century how by you know, the fact that church leaders didn't take a more proactive stance, and of course, there's always the what-ifs of history if they had only done more, if they'd only educated the church, but the reality is, is at the end of the day, they didn't, and as a consequence, through the 20th century, our church has really suffered uh, through a number of hermeneutical battles, and specifically with some people who have taken this very rigid, narrow view of LNY and tried to make that normative in the church. And so, so George, in a way, is really uh, chronicling the struggles within the Adventist church, especially as it you know uh, uh, amps up during the 1970s and 80s with people like Ron Numbers and Walter Ray, who they themselves are reacting against a very rigid and, and some problematic aspects, I would even say flawed understandings of Ellen white of of inerrancy and a narrow and rigid view of inspiration and so in a way uh, what George does in his book and I highly recommend it as, as you say because it shows the consequences of what has happened and the struggles that we've had through the 20th century and and why hermeneutics and why how we interpret Ellen white matters it, it makes a difference it still makes a difference and and so if, if anyone doubts that just read george knight's book uh and and he does it in such just a, such a thoughtful and and such a nice way that i i i personally have a really appreciated it and of course at the very end he puts in there the most interesting parts of the 1919 transcripts at the very end with the bible and history teachers which uh or probably if you haven't read anything of the 1919 Bible Conference transcripts, that's the portion to read from the last, just the last two days where they're having these very, very candid conversations amongst themselves about, you know, these views of inerrancy and how to interpret Ellen White, you know, and and at one point, I last year at ASRS, the Adventist Society for Religious Studies, I, I gave a paper on the, what I call the haunting of Adventism, how by not, paying attention, you know, these church leaders are, are realizing that there's a shift taking place within the church towards fundamentalism. If we don't do something about it, we're going to have a lot of trouble in the future. And and sure enough, again, as, as George Knight points out, we did.
0: Yeah, Michael, um, I, as I have read uh, some of your articles and work on the 1919 um, Bible conference, you, you, you kind of sound a prophetic voice, if you will. If, if listener, you understand, we're as a historian. As I listen to a historian, I recognize that they say we ought to learn these lessons because if we don't, in the future, we will face them again. And you, you, are, you have warned us that what we see today in uh, dialogue around gender issues or race issues, uh, the promulgation of last generation theology, that this flirting with fundamentalism, this failure to come to grips with uh, its influence, uh, that it would bring us to this place we are today. I, so I'm, I, 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 as I listen to you, I'm hearing you say, that if we would examine what was going on in 1919, we would be better prepared to be less judgmental, To we'd be better prepared to not shift to one extreme or the other in the midst of this dialogue.
1: Well, what I really see, and it's in a nutshell again, uh, Skip, is that just as the Adventist church was moving towards fundamentalism, about the time of 1919, you look through the 1920s and you see how it radically impacted Adventism in the ways that you mentioned. In a way, what's become very popular in American Christianity, again, is sort of this neo-fundamentalism that we're seeing within the broader uh, conservative Christian world. And uh, as that becomes in vogue, Uh, we begin to see that once again, Adventism is struggling with the same issues um, at its core. Will we become fundamentalist again? Is that the direction for the future of the church? And just as in 1919, uh, church leaders recognized that it was extremely disturbing and problematic, the reality is, is that those same kinds of things, obviously the personalities have changed, the specific issues have changed, but underlying it are these um, core hermeneutical issues and at stake is the future of Adventism and Adventist identity. Will we uh, basically, you know, will the church become fundamentalist? And what kind of view of Ellen White and her legacy and her authority will we have in the denomination?
0: Mm-hmm. So, as you continue to study and think about the 1919 conference and all of the uh, scope of Adventist history, this is part of the takeaway, isn't it? Are, are there any other perspectives, Michael, on the takeaway from the 1919 conference that you think uh we ought to pause and and think carefully about. Uh, you, you've touched on that, but anything else in that area?
1: Yeah, you know, on a more pragmatic level, I mean, I know you've been a, a pastor and church administrator as well as a teacher for many years, and, you know, I, I've also, you know, spent time in pastoral ministry, so I kind of have this pastoral uh, pastor's heart approach to some of these kinds of things, and, and you know, as I was studying this, it, it seemed that you know, on a very, very practical level, we as Adventists struggle with this. You know, how many of us go to a Sabbath school and uh, have have seen where people begin taking sides and and throw out their list of Ellen White quotes and, or sometimes they call them Ellen White grenades and try to see you know, who's left standing after all the dust settles. And so we have this tendency where we tend to push each other and as we do theological warfare that even, in fact, it seems that the people that we're closest to, I mean, isn't this true in life that we tend to push farthest away? And here within Adventism, we have so much that we can agree on as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet these little differences, we allow them to push um, push one another and polarize one another, and so how we do theology matters. Um, theology matters. Good theology matters. It makes a big difference. And but at the same time, uh, also there's a certain aspect in how we understand. We sh- as you know, as Adventists, we have a responsibility to listen to those we disagree with, and what are the reasons why to try to understand one another better. So, I think one of the takeaways for me on a very practical level is recognizing how we go about... You know, George Knight, one time he told me, he said, you know, there should be an 11th commandment, thou shalt not do theology against thy neighbor. And ah. I've thought about that many times because, uh you know, we have a tendency if we're not careful that we can push each other farther away so we should listen to those we disagree with try to understand and and of course recognize uh those different approaches uh and assumptions that sometimes we may not even at first recognize that make a profound difference in how we interpret the bible and how we interpret ellen white
0: that's uh very good counsel michael man i i wish we could come to a sense of um, appreciation of the tension as we uh, work with issues of inspiration and revelation, and as we consider the formative contribution to Ellen White's ministry, her writings, her teaching uh, among those who helped launch this movement. Yeah, I wish we could come to a, an appreciation of one another without this polarization. Maybe I'm a bit naive to hope we could do so.
1: Maybe it can also give us a sense of humility too that uh, uh, before that you know, we always have the correct interpretation uh, that maybe we should temper our enthusiasm just a little bit uh, to recognize maybe there's something we can learn from those around us too.
0: Uh, Very good, Michael. Well, listener, um, we've been uh, listening, visiting with Michael Campbell, uh, professor at Southwestern Adventist University. Uh, His recent uh, book, 1919, The Untold Story of Adventism Struggle with Fundamentalism, uh, Pacific Press publisher. Uh, Yeah, get hold of it and read it. It's an important contribution to our understanding. Uh, Michael, thank you for being with us today and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks again for having me. And uh, listener, in my life experience, uh, I have encountered... Um, within our Adventist family, people uh, who have found security in a very clear understanding of uh, what seemed to tend towards the fundamentalist view of inspiration and at the same time found encouragement and hope from those whose views were much broader. And uh, it, it calls me in my own personal life to be grateful for the breadth of the witness of the Adventist Church, to not despair, but yes, to keep to keep focused on Jesus. Uh, we're all saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am inspired by those who kindly would respond with grace to all those in our midst who ultimately would say, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, the beginning and the end. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.